You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning. Merry Christmas. It is great to see everybody here this morning. Glad you're able to brave the weather and and become and, and be here to fellowship together. And yes, it is uh, Christmas. Oh, please turn to John chapter 14. <clears throat> John chapter 14 is where we are today. Uh, just a head heads up. If you're accustomed to having all the scriptures. You know, all the even the verses and everything printed out on the screen. That won't be happening today. All the references will be there that uh, I usually put up, but not the scriptures themselves. So, uh, and I did that not because I'm trying to make a point. I just did that because this week that's how that worked out better for me. So, uh, be ready for that. You can look them up and, and follow along in your own uh, in your own Bible there. So, uh, it is Christmas, and as Christmas has been approaching. There is a question that I'm sure many of you have either heard or asked or both. Have you got your Christmas shopping done yet? I mean, how many of you asked that of anybody else? No? A few of you. Okay. How many of you heard that from somebody else? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clear back in August, I, I think I heard that from some. Got your Christmas shopping done yet? I don't even know what Christmas is in August. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. Now, uh, if I ask that question right now, would some of you still say no? No? Oh, yeah, would you? You still say no. That, that's funny. Okay. Um, and, you know, it seems to be the way. Does your, you can tell me if this is true for you. Does your Christmas season get busier and busier each year? Well, maybe I'm talking to the wrong people here, but I think for a lot of people that's true. And, and a lot of people might find themselves having a more difficult time deciding what to get their family and friends for Christmas. Maybe you feel a little like the person who said this. 25 years ago, Christmas was not the burden that it is now. There was less haggling and weighing, less quid pro quo, less fatigue of body, less weariness of soul, and most of all, there was less loading up with trash. You know, in an age where we become sensitized to the commercialization of Christmas and get kind of tired of it, I can understand that sentiment. Now this quote, it seems like our modern perspective, I think. This quote came from a woman named Margaret DeLand in an article published in Harper's Bazaar magazine in 1904. Yeah, she said that more than 100 years ago. That's not new, is it? Yeah. Either she was ahead of her time, or there's always been a struggle between celebrating Christ's birth and being overwhelmed by Christmas. Kind of a balance, isn't it, sometimes, right? Celebrating Christ's birth, being overcome by Christmas. And, you know, traditions of gift giving vary among those who observe Christmas. How many of you typically open your presents on Christmas Day? I realize today might be anything. Typically on Christmas Day. Okay. All right. How many of you usually open your presents on Christmas Eve? Heathens? No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. Okay. And some, you know, of course, some choose not to give gifts at all, which is perfectly fine, as it would be if you chose not to celebrate Christmas at all. It's not a, it's not a Bible thing, but, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. 
It's not commanded. We're, we're doing it. But it's not something that, if, that we are so tied to that this defines us in our relationship with Christ. That's not Christmas, as has been pointed out over and over and over. J.C. and, and you know, Ned in his prayers this morning and the guys around the table. And, I mean, you, you people know where the focus is, and I appreciate that. I do. I will say this, though. For those that do give gifts... It has been estimated that total spending on Christmas gifts this year in the United States alone will exceed $600 billion. Yeah. How would you like to have to wrap all those presents? No. As we have pointed out before, the Gospel of John doesn't have much to say about the birth of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 is about all there is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I, I love that because it's, it's compact. I don't mind wise men and shepherds and angels, but I like that because it is compact. And yet it tells us the essentials. Christ came. Christ was born, right? And though our scripture today from John chapter 14, it's not the traditional Christmas story. It does tell us of someone giving gifts to someone else. That someone is Jesus. And in John chapter 14, we can identify at least four separate gifts that Jesus gives to his disciples. The title of today's message is, Jesus Gives Gifts. We'll begin in John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, when we left uh, Jesus and the disciples at the end of John chapter 13, Jesus had just announced that one of the twelve was going to betray him and that Peter was going to deny him three times before morning. You can understand why the disciples would have been troubled at that point. It's well known by them that there's a plot to put Jesus to death. Jesus himself has been speaking more and more openly about his coming death and also about the time when he will leave the disciples and not be with them bodily anymore. The next 24 hours, now putting ourselves in their place, thinking about it from their perspective, the next 24 hours are going to be potentially devastating to the 11 remaining disciples, and I say 11 remaining now that Judas Iscariot has left to betray Jesus. There's no changing what is about to happen. Judas will lead the authorities to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they will arrest Jesus. Jesus will be tried all through the night, during which time Peter will deny Jesus three times. They, then they will see Jesus taken to Golgotha, or Calvary, nailed to a cross, and left there until he dies. At that point, just before the Sabbath begins, Jesus' body will be taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb. Now, for anybody else, that would be the absolute end of the story. We know, though, that it's not the end for Jesus. We know that. 
But his disciples won't know that for a few days still. They still have to experience all that. And they're still going to see all that. And so Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Well, there's a point to that. And Jesus gives them a way to deal with whatever anxiety they're feeling then or at any other time. And I think this is for us as well. Jesus told them simply to believe in God and to believe in Him. I wonder if Peter remembered that night later when he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Having genuine saving faith in Jesus does not mean that you'll never face hard times. What it does mean is that no matter what those hard times are, You never have to despair. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And now we come to the first of the four gifts that we see Jesus giving to his disciples here in John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And this is, I mean, a little out of place, I guess, when we're thinking about Christmas. I understand we have a a young couple here among us that uh, at some point, not too far in the future, there's going to be a wedding. Am I correct about that? Congratulations. Bless you both. Right? Okay. That's going to be a good thing. Well, this is, this is maybe something uh, not in our culture, but that you might be interested in. In the first century Jewish culture, when a man and woman became engaged, the man would leave the woman at her home with her family while he returned to his father's house to prepare a place for he and his, him and his wife to live after the marriage had taken place. They'd actually add on to the, to the building that was already there. And this is what Jesus is promising to his disciples here. That he is leaving for a time so he can prepare a place where they can be with him forever. Okay, that's a gift. And I said they. Well, this promise, this gift, is for everyone who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if that includes you, then Jesus is preparing a place where we can be with him forever. Now this eternal home that Jesus is preparing is going to be magnificent. And how do I know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9, it says this, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even begin to fully imagine what Jesus is preparing for you in heaven right now. Okay? You think about you wrapping presents, okay? And the day when those pers- people that you prepare those for get to open them, and you're excited about that. Yeah, Jesus is wrapping your present. Okay, that's a good thing. All right. Now, like any place you've never been before, you need to know how to get there. How do you get to the heavenly home that Jesus is preparing for you? You can't use GPS. You can't use Google Maps, right? So how do you get there? Well, there's only one way to reach heaven. And Jesus is that way. This includes, that way includes accepting the truth that Jesus is and the truth that Jesus proclaims. When we receive Jesus on his terms, he gives us eternal life with him in heaven. Let's go on to verse 7. Jesus is still speaking. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is is enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Even after Jesus states the matter plainly, Philip and the rest of the disciples don't understand exactly who Jesus is. And they don't understand exactly what Jesus had already done for them. Jesus specifically said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And after Philip's plea that Jesus show them the Father, Jesus makes that famous claim, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now John understood this by the time he wrote his gospel. They may not have understood it that night, but afterwards and after the resurrection and and some other things that we'll talk about here, John understood this. Back in John chapter 1, verse uh, 18, John said this about Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The English Standard Version and the New International Version both say, He, talking about Jesus now, He has made Him known. Jesus has made God known by His earthly existence. Being in Jesus' presence, getting to know Him, and understanding what He wants is Exactly like being in God the Father's presence, getting to know Him, and understanding what He wants. The writer of Hebrews said that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus came, in part, to show us God the Father, and He succeeded. Now verse 12 contains what may be the most difficult expression In John chapter 14, I think it's one of the most difficult in the entire gospel. How could Jesus' followers do greater things than he did? Think about the things we've already seen Jesus do, right? Jesus healed the sick. Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, while it is true that the apostles did perform some acts of healing by Jesus' power. There are even a couple of instances of the dead being raised. What was the ultimate benefit of those acts? I mean, they were temporary, right? But greater than those things, greater than the healing, greater even than, than the, the raising the dead, was the proclamation of the gospel message. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried in the tomb, and he rose from the dead. Central message of the gospel, right? Because of that, all those who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Now, in verses 13 and 14, we find the second gift that Jesus gives to his followers. This is an amazing thing. He says, if you ask ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we have to be careful here. 
That, that hardly means that anything we say in prayer will be done as long as we end the prayer with the words in Jesus' name, like it's some kind of magic formula or something. That's not how that works. So we might want to know, what does it mean to truly pray in Jesus' name? Well, uh, New Testament scholar Leon Morris put it this way. To pray in Jesus' name means that prayer is to be in accordance with all that the name stands for. It is prayer proceeding from faith in Christ. Prayer that gives expression to a unity with all that Christ stands for. Prayer which seeks to set forward Christ himself. That's the kind of prayer that I think Jesus responds to with this promise. And Jesus also said that his fulfillment of these requests would bring glory to God the Father. You know, sometimes we don't know the consequences of our acts. Sometimes we don't know the consequences of the things that we ask for. And we might ask for something sometime that wouldn't wind up glorifying God. Why would Jesus grant us that? Just because we ask it in his name? See, he knows that. He knows where it's going to end up. He knows what the consequences will be. And so he knows how to respond properly, right? When he fulfills this promise, it will, be, it will bring glory to God the Father. But I, we have to make sure we balance this with the other side of the perspective. Even though we cannot appropriate this promise to be some kind of blank check to make Jesus do whatever we say, neither should we be afraid to pray fervently for those things which uphold and seek Christ's own desire for our lives, our purpose, and our ministry, or for the lives of others, for their purpose and for their ministry. As the author of Hebrews said, Therefore, let us draw, with con draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The assurance that our prayers are heard. Your prayers, my prayers are heard. And that Jesus takes action on the basis of our prayers. That's a tremendous gift. Uh, there's another side to that too. In verse 15, Jesus reiterates what it means to be his follower. As well as what is required in order to have the relationship with him that allows us to make those requests. That's not for everybody. It can't just be anybody who says, uh, and in Jesus' name we think this should happen. No, there, there has to be some kind of a relationship here. And we have that. And we have evidence of that relationship. Jesus' death on the cross is one evidence of his love for us. Obeying his commands is one evidence of our love for him. Okay. Let's go on to verse uh, 16. Jesus is still speaking, and he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, there was another one in that group of twelve apostles there. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
What then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The third gift that Jesus gives his disciples here in this passage is the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, says that the gift of the Holy Spirit is promised to those believers in Jesus who repented of their sins and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So who is this Holy Spirit? Well, we know him as the third person of God. He was present and active at creation, according to Genesis 1-2. But he's described here as a helper, or depending on your translation, an advocate or counselor. The Greek word is parakletos, and John is the only New Testament writer who uses this word. It means one who comes alongside of. Outside the scriptures, this word consistently carries the idea of a legal advisor, or helper, or advocate in court proceedings. Right In the scriptures, John uses the word in a slightly broader sense including an advocate who speaks on another's behalf in court, but also used to refer to an advisor, a counselor, or a helper. I will say that the reference to comforter in the King James Version, not really the best translation. It may well be that the Holy Spirit performs that function as he has that relationship with us, that he provides comfort as well. But that's not really the best translation of this word. And John also uses this same word, to describe Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. To describe Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. He uses the same word. Uh, John writes in 1 John 2, 1, that if we sin, we have an advocate. That's that same word. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I have to make one more comment about this. We have to be careful with the translation helper as we find in the New American Standard, which is what I've been reading out of. The reason we have to be careful about that, I think, is because when we think of the word helper, a helper is often understood to be a subordinate, right? Like an assistant, like, you know, go get me coffee or whatever, I don't know. That's not, not going to happen here. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is our superior. He's God. The Holy Spirit is our guide, directing us in making godly decisions if we will listen to Him. He is our advocate, assisting us with resisting the influence of the sinful world. And His presence in our lives identifies us as those who belong to God. And as Jesus says here, He is the Spirit of truth. Pretty important. And Jesus says in chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Still speaking about the Holy Spirit, in 2 Corinthians 1.22, Paul calls him the seal of our redemption. And in Ephesians 1.13, the pledge of our inheritance. Having the Holy Spirit abide in you is the evidence of your salvation. And Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will be with them and with us as his followers now forever. A tremendous gift there. God, Jesus gives us here with the Holy Spirit. And... We spent a lot of time on that because it's really important. 
Jesus, excuse me, Jesus then talks about the difference between those who love him and those who don't. Those who keep his commandments and those who don't. And he says that he will reveal himself to those who love him and keep his commandments. And he also says that he and the Father will come and live with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now you think about that for a minute. He's already promised that the Holy Spirit, we say God, the third person of God, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would be with his disciples forever. He's now saying that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all will be with his disciples. That's pretty amazing. And the condition that makes this possible is that his disciples love him and keep his commandments. Now that's not earning your salvation. What that is... That is faith expressed. Okay, Faith is not merely a mental construct. It is not a simple act of intellectual belief. Faith produces action. And all three persons of God respond by being with the one who has that active faith. The other teaching here about the Holy Spirit is something Jesus gave, I think, specifically to these remaining 11 apostles now that Judas Iscariot is gone. These 11 and also a few selected other individuals, perhaps Matthias, the replacement for Judas later on, and like the Apostle Paul, these, these men were going to serve as the bridge or the transition between Jesus' ministry and the church age in which we now live. How absolutely critical it was for them that the Holy Spirit teach them the things they needed to know in order to start and grow the church. I mean, what a daunting task. How do you do that? You don't have a, book, a written instruction book. The New Testament hasn't been compiled yet. And so how, how, do you, how do you begin that process? And the Holy Spirit is the answer. Okay. In addition, the Holy Spirit enabled them to remember everything that they needed in order to write like these Gospels that John's writing now, as we're reading, as well as the rest of the New Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit is unquestionably essential to the existence of the church, both then and now. Let's go to verse 27. Again, Jesus speaking throughout all this, here's what he says in verse 27 and following. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. The fourth gift Jesus gives to his followers in John chapter 14 is peace. And so even though this isn't the traditional Christmas passage, it's really the Christmas message, right? Like what Luke 2.14 records. When the heavenly host told the shepherds the night Jesus was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among men with whom he is pleased. You think about that word peace. That word means different things to different people, doesn't it? I mean, uh, and I don't mean any offense when I say this. If I'm offensive, I, I, I apologize now. I, I don't want it to be. There's the stereotypical, 
beauty pageant contestants' desire for world peace, right? You hear that all the time. And then there's the tired mom who would just like the house to calm down for a bit so she can have some peace and quiet. I imagine some of you ladies have been there and felt that. What is this peace that Jesus gives to his followers? And how is it different than the peace given by the world? Well, the peace Jesus promises is not peace among all the nations of the earth. World peace will never occur, in my opinion. I base that on this. Jesus himself said that the signs of his second coming would include wars and rumors of wars. Beauty pageant contestants, take note. World peace ain't happening. So, (laughs) the peace Jesus promises is not peace between individual human beings. Although in Romans 12, 18, the Apostle Paul wrote, if possible, and I love the qualifiers here, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, my mom used to say, probably still does, but not to me anymore. But anyway, she used to say that it takes two to make a fight. Didn't she say that? Yeah. Now, Mom, pardon me if it sounds like I'm contradicting contradicting you. I'm not. It may sound that way, but I'm not doing that, right? I think it only takes one to make a fight. Takes two to make a fight interesting, okay? Yeah. (laughs) Now, that said, it doesn't matter whether it takes one or two to make a fight. It definitely takes two to make peace, okay? The peace... Jesus promised is the peace that each one of us can have with God. We were his enemies because of our sin, but in Romans 5.1 we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're picking teams, right? When I was a kid on the playground, you know, we did that picking teams thing. You ever been in that, involved in that picking teams, Right? I won't go into all my mental, you know, psychological scarring based on that event. But anyway, we did that when I was a kid. And so, you know, you, you have, there was somebody, you wanted to be on their team because they were really good and you wanted to be on their team. Whose team do you want to be on? I think we want to be on God's team. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 7 adds that this peace surpasses all comprehension. Some translations says, say, passes all understanding. This peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. To which I'd say, Amen. Again, with the angels we say, Let there be peace on earth among men with whom God is pleased. And then once again, Jesus speaks plainly of the time coming soon when he will not be with his disciples in bodily form any longer. Now that's pretty straightforward, but I do have to cover this. One potentially confusing point here is Jesus' statement that the Father is greater than He is. Now those who wish to deny the deity of Jesus Christ are quick to jump on this statement as proof that Jesus is not God. If, however, Jesus is God, as this Gospel is so clear in pointing out, then how is it that the Father is greater than Jesus? And I think here again is a time when we must consider the willing subordination in which Jesus placed himself relative to God the Father. Is Jesus God just as much as God the Father is God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are God the Father and Jesus separate and distinct persons of God? And again, I'd say absolutely. So when Jesus willingly submits to the authority, 
will, and direction of God the Father. Does that make Jesus any less fully God than God the Father? Absolutely not. Verses 10 and 24 of this very chapter tell how Jesus says and does only what the Father directs him to say and do. This example of submission among equals is a wonderful example to us in our churches and in our families and in our relationship to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. As we are called to have that submission to one another. Why should I submit to you? I'm, we're told, submit to one another in love. As Christian, brothers and sisters, why should I? You're my equal. Why should I submit to you? Jesus himself submitted to God the Father. Why shouldn't I submit to you if I want to follow his example? So Jesus was going to the Father, and the disciples should rejoice that he was able to do so, and there's rejoicing for us as well, and for them. Even as Jesus has gone to the Father, if we are in him through faith in his saving power, then we will someday go to the Father as well. And then these last two verses. I mean, we still have several chapters to cover before the crucifixion. But for them, the time is short. The evening is progressing rapidly for Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus says that the ruler of the world is coming. But what does that mean? Now, the term ruler of the world, or depending on your translation, yours might say something slightly different. But it's a pretty clear reference to Satan. Now, where did we last see him? Do you recall? Back in chapter 13 and verse 27, we see Satan entering into Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas let him in. It wasn't like this was a, a, you know, a takeover, a hostile takeover. Judas was cooperative with that effort. But we see Satan entering into Judas Iscariot. And I think Jesus is referring to, that, uh, to him. I think Judas is on his way back toward the Garden of Gethsemane with the various soldiers and authorities to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus tells his disciples that it's time to leave the upper room. So, it is Christmas Day. And we've been talking about gifts. Now, here, a little different question than the ones I asked before. How many of you still have gifts to open? Yeah, quite a few of us do. Um, I still have gifts to wrap, like all of them, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't know when Nick's going to make it home now that the weather's turned really ugly. So uh, he had to be in Boise for tomorrow. And so we're, we're wait, waiting on Nick to come home to do our, our exchange of gifts. So I've got a little extra time. I'm kind of glad at, that, at this point. But anyway... Here's a, a worse question, I suppose. How many of you are hoping I'll be done soon so you can go home and open your gifts, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please, just stop. Yeah, no, don't go there. Okay. Here's what I hope is a more important question. Whether you've already opened your gifts or not. How many of you think that the gifts that you'll open this Christmas are or will be better than the gifts that Jesus gives to his disciples? No, I don't think so. Let's take a look again at the gifts we saw mentioned here in John chapter 14, just briefly. Our eternal home, right? Better than Barbie's Malibu Beach House. No, it's, it, it's, even, it's even better than that. Better than a real Malibu Beach House, right? Jesus has gone to prepare a place in heaven for his disciples, And that means if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have a place in heaven where you can be with God and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit forever. Listen to this description from Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, that will apply to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
We read this uh, back when we studied Revelation, but here it is again. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. The scene is in heaven, by the way. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, that's the dwelling place of God, is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And that is what Jesus has gone to prepare for those who love him and who keep his commandments. Now, have you ever gotten a gift card? Right? Gift card? You know how gift cards work. You take your gift card to the store named on the card, and you can buy whatever you want with it, at least until the gift card is empty. Some gift cards expire, and all gift cards, as far as I know, are restricted as to where you can use them. Can't take your subway card to Walmart, is what I'm saying, right? Well, Jesus gives his followers, in in an analogy here, Jesus gives his followers a gift card that has no limit and never expires. But it does have to be used for things of which he would approve. And I wonder... Without focusing so much on that side of it, I wonder, have you explored what Jesus might do when you ask humbly and unselfishly in his name? Have you really explored the power of prayer? Not, and the power of prayer, by the way, is not ours. It doesn't belong to us, but he allows us to tap into his power in that way for his good, for his glory, according to his will. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That's an amazing gift. How, uh, now, here is uh, the third one. How many of you have heard of life coaching? Yeah, a few. Yeah, life coaching, right? The aim of life coaching, as I understand it, it deals mostly with a person's present situation and seeks to guide him or her into a more desirable future. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. You can even give the gift of life coaching for Christmas. Although I would have to say that sounds a little like giving someone a puppy without knowing for sure that they want one. But anyway, now, having the Holy Spirit living in you is so much better. I'm not saying life coaches shouldn't be had, but I'm saying having the Holy Spirit living in you is so much better than having a life coach. As He's God. And because He's God, the Holy Spirit knows everything there is to know about you. Everything. And so He can help you, and He can point you in the right direction every time. Not only that, but his presence in you is an identifier that marks you as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. Sets you apart in that way. And something we didn't even talk about, it would take a whole other series of messages probably to cover this. But the Holy Spirit, you, you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you can read Romans chapter 12. You want to read about some of these things. The Holy Spirit has his own spiritual gifts that he gives to believers in whatever way he decides, in whatever measure, for whatever time, for the common good of all those who are in the church. Having the Holy Spirit, that's a pretty tremendous gift. And the last gift we looked at here was peace. I know that many people who are looking for a break from their hectic lives like to vacation at Christmas time. You know anybody that likes to vacation at Christmas time? Yeah, okay. I, I know people like that. And I get that. But I can give you at least two shortcomings that vacations have. And of course, the first one is they don't last forever, right? 
Why don't they last forever? Well, you can't afford it. And after a while, people tend to get bored, even with vacations, right? But for me, and, and if I'm displaying more about myself than you want to know, I've, I apologize for that. But the second shortcoming of the vacation is you don't get anything done while you're on vacation. Have you noticed that, right? Okay. I, that may sound like the whole point of having a vacation, but I really don't like coming back from a vacation and being even more behind than I was when I left. I really don't like that feeling, you know? In contrast, the peace that Jesus gives us is permanent. It's not like a vacation. It's something you can always have. Always. In every circumstance. And we can experience it and still fulfill our God-given purpose at the same time. You don't have to put everything else on hold to have the peace of Christ in you. Okay? You can still do what He wants you to do in every other way. In Christ... We can be at peace with God instead of being his enemies because of our sin. And so, for those of you who are Christians, these are your gifts. These are, are uh, some of them. These are not, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just John chapter 14 as we happen to cover it on Christmas Day. But these are your gifts. These are gifts for you because you're in Christ. Because you belong to Him. This is what He's promised. But if you're not in Christ yet, well, we've talked about these things. What do you think about the gifts that Jesus has given to His followers? I mean, are these gifts that you would like to receive? Not everybody understands or appreciates the value of these things. They don't understand what that means, what it means to have them. But if these are gifts that you would like to receive, the good news is that you can. You can receive them, all of them, if you're a true disciple of Jesus. God offers you these amazing gifts, and here it is on Christmas Day. I wonder if you would consider offering Him the gift of you. If you would ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song. We'll sing it twice through.